This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In 1900, a Taoist monk was exploring a cave complex on the edge of the Gobi Desert in northwest China. He discovered a sealed chamber which had lain undisturbed for over 900 years. When it was opened, this small room turned out to contain thousands of previously unknown Chinese manuscripts. This treasure trove of material is making historians revise their view of early China. Previously, our knowledge of the country's early history was based on long-established texts, some of which are thought to be almost 3,000 years old. Many of these are official histories, written by court officials and based on the administrative records of previous royal dynasties. These works amount to one of the most detailed historical records for any ancient civilization. But what do they record? What are their shortcomings? And how are recent discoveries altering our view of China's early history? With me to discuss the sources of early Chinese history are Rule Sturks, Joseph Needham Professor of Chinese History at the University of Cambridge, Tim Barrett, former Professor of East Asian History at SOAS, University of London, and Hilda Wirt, Professor of Chinese History at Leiden University. Rule Sturks, can you tell us about the earliest known examples of the Chinese making a record of their significant events? The earliest written records that have quote-unquote historiographical value in China would be the so-called oracle bone inscriptions of the Shang Dynasty. The Shang, a polity which was there from 1700, onwards, 1700 BC onwards, but the written record really sort of 1200 uh, as a starting point. These are uh, inscriptions that are written on shoulder blades of oxen and on turtle shells, and they are, in essence, divination records in which the Shang king consults the royal ancestors about you know, his, daily, his daily doings. Um, what happens on those particular records is that a particular charge, a question would be put to the royal ancestors, which would be written on this particular bone. A priest would then take a hot poker, crack the bone, and would write down a prognostication. For example, will the king become ill this month? Then he will read the cracks on these bones and interpret this as the answer of the royal ancestors. And the verification would then be written on those bones as well. For example, this would say, if the king doesn't engage in battle this year, he won't be ill, and so it was. Now, these are records of which God, we have about <clears throat> we have about 200,000 fragments of these scattered right. around collections in the world. We have about 800 of them in, in the Cambridge University Library. They're useful in the sense that they allow us to sort of puzzle together the uh, movements of you know the Shang royal family, what they did, uh, we have divinations about topics such as childbirth. We have divinations about a toothache. Um, <clears throat> but they're, of course, also very biased because a divine or a priest will never disagree with the Shang King. And, of course, the Shang King will never disagree with the verdict or the advice of the Shang ancestors or the royal ancestors. What materials did they move on to after the shoulder blade of oxes and, uh, and shells? The next stage would be bronze, and so from about 1050 BC, we do uh, increasingly see inscriptions cast in bronze vessels. This was done mostly by the Zhou people, and these inscriptions, again, would record uh, transactions of lands, appointments, military campaigns, and so on, ranging uh, from inscriptions as short as 40 characters to inscriptions, I think the longest ones we have are just under 500 characters. Um, 
What is interesting about those is that here and there we do find for the first time snippets of opinion. In other words, we see that in those inscriptions a judgment is being pronounced on the previous dynasty, the Shang dynasty. And, and they move to bamboo where they can get more on and then eventually to paper. Well, what that's right. How much useful information are these early sources, say the first, just let's take the first millennium, uh, how much useful information are they giving us for your purposes of interpreting and extrapolating? They're very useful in the sense that they obviously include a lot of factual information and that you know physically they can be tied to a specific place and to a specific time. They become more useful, of course, if we can corroborate what's in them uh, with later textual evidence, and then we can obviously sort of test whether opinion in later times reflects, you know, what might have happened, you know, in the earliest days. But they're also biased because, of course, they are being composed, put together under the patronage of, you know, a king, a court, uh, the quote-unquote scribe or historiographer, if you like, is, you know, sort of uh, in the service, you know, of a ruler, which means that, of course, dissent, uh, alternative interpretation of events. Uh, are <clears throat> relatively rare, and if they are, they would be put in rather veiled and indirect ways. But what we're talking about, Hildebert, is already a, a civilization, the Chinese civilization, which uses writing intensively, a very small circle and so on, but it's using it intensively for recording its own existence. Um, the first, one of the earliest books is the Book of Documents. Can you give us a date for that? Tell us why that is significant. Okay. Well, to start with the, the date, it's, it's quite difficult to date that because unlike the oracle bones or the bronzes where we can verify, we have the original, so we, we can uh, use oftentimes scientific methods to date them accurately, this is far more difficult to do for texts that have come down to us through various hands over a long period of time. We only have the current editions, really, to, to work with. Uh, but by and large now, the, uh, there is agreement that some of the earliest portions of the Book of Documents goes back to roughly the same period as the Oracle Bones, so 1200 BCE for some of the earliest, uh, and more likely 11th, 10th century. Some of the early Zhou records are most likely authentic speeches. And that's what these texts mostly are. So they're, as the title itself suggests, it's, it's a collection of documents, documents that mostly report speeches either by the kings or by their ministers. Can you give some idea of the nature of these speeches? They, what are they talking about? They're talking about roughly the same topics that were covered in the Oracle Bones and the Bronzes. Uh, and bronzes were usually very short texts where somebody would be invested with certain responsibilities and tasks. We find the same sorts of speeches recorded in the Book of Documents. Uh, they also include speeches by kings to, uh, that are addressed to a larger group of people in which they tell them what they think good government should be. Uh, there are also speeches by ministers where they give advice to the king as to what to do. And this is what we, we tend to see this as one of the earliest histories. And in, in some sense, that, that is the case. They're the earliest written records that have come down to us continuously. They record the earliest history from roughly 2500 BCE to 500 BCE. But that was not necessarily their intent because their speeches, their documents, they're sort of precedents for good government. And are that's they how they've been interpreted. Sorry, mm -hmm. So they're about government. Are they about going to war or the economy or the population growth or decline or plagues or that sort of stuff? We can distill information from these records that would help us understand those questions, but those were not the questions that they were working with. The question that probably was in the minds of those who were maintaining these records, either through oral tradition or in written tradition, was what were the first kings, these 
the, the mythological kings who had designed civilization, how did they think about good government? How did they treat the people? How did they deal with their ministers? Um, and there are various models in there. There is not one answer because it covers such a large period. So of you time. mentioned so it rests on the mythologies. They build from the mythologies, and do they keep referring back to the mythological beginnings of the civilization and test themselves against it? That is indeed the case. And because the record is very thin from, from that period, there's a lot of re mythologizing. That means that because it is an ideal in the far past. It is, by definition, very valuable, but we can fill it out with whatever content we think is important, and that happens throughout Chinese history. Another significant historical work in that early period is called Spring and Autumn Annals, which gains some of its luster by its traditional association with Confucius. Indeed. Well, to uh, give, first of all, a little bit of an idea of what this uh, text is about, it is a, a chronicle. A very thin chronicle about what sorts of events either happened at the court of Lu, one of the states uh, that was around the time uh, between, say, roughly the 8th century to, to the uh, 5th century. BC. BCE, indeed. Um, and it's, it records the same sorts of events again, who comes to court, what wars does the court uh, engage, um, who is it investing with powers, um, it became associated with Confucius because the idea was that the, this was not just a record of events. The, the way in which these events were recorded also implied an evaluation of the events themselves, the characters that were involved, the uh, behaviours that were on display. So it became a guide as to how to interpret history from a moral perspective. Is there any hard evidence that he had anything whatsoever to do with it? All evidence suggests that he probably didn't have much to do with it. He uh, does occur in your, it. <laughs> you're still keeping a little toe in that water, are you? Well, didn't have much, but they might be a little... Well, I think we should respect the fact that for many Chinese throughout history, uh, there was a vested belief in the fact that, that he was the author of it. Yeah, but belief is Nevins, is it? And that, is, that it, it is belief. Uh, I would say no, there is, there is no evidence to suggest that. The hard question is why would somebody who is such a sage person, who is a philosopher write down a very dry record. I mean, to give you an idea, the, the sort of history you get there is, on this day, this year, this person assassinated this other person. Uh, so like assassinated his ruler. This is it. <laughs> so it takes a lot of work to make something out of it. Tim Barrett, the, but nevertheless, the spring and autumn annals uh, were supplemented by a number of commentaries afterwards, yes. which, <coughs> which were, according to all three of you, which were much more interesting because they bring a lot more history and judgment to bear. We cut out the more interesting and let's talk about these commentaries. Okay. Some, some bring history to bear, some bring judgment to bear, yeah. as it were. Um, there, there are three commentaries that are early, uh, and one at least uh, seems to have been initially um, an entirely independent work, the commentary of a man named Zor, whom... whom whose identity we're not clear about at all. But uh, it seems to have been um, much more the sort of history that you wish the Spring and Autumn Annals had been. It, it has, uh, It's not focused on one uh, particular state in China. It, it takes the whole Chinese world into its view and uh, it tells you uh, in more detail about battles and about uh, who was assassinating who and to some extent why and occasionally um, whoever compiled it um, 
it could have been um, more than one person, will reflect on events uh, and uh, say uh, what they thought the meaning was or what this tells us. Well, can you give us any idea <coughs> um, what sort of reflect? What were the well? What, what were the main sort of reflections? Okay, the the, re- the main sort of reflections tend to be moral. Um, such as you know, well, um, that uh, such and such an event is is. Uh, uh, shows that if you allow women an influence in politics, then everything goes downhill. Um, that would be an absolutely standard uh, uh, reflection on history that, that uh, sounds a note that, that, that rings through the next few thousand years and indeed explains why, for the most part, uh, Chinese historical sources are not a good place to look for information about women. And is it true that one, as it were, dynasty after another... It's almost an obligation to rubbish the previous dynasty. Well, it's obviously um, it's a, it's a good political way to 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 uh, legitimate your own rule by saying that the dynasty started very well, but then it went downhill. Uh, what were the reasons given for it going downhill? <laughs> uh, okay. What were the usual reasons? Well, the usual reasons are. Um, the the later rulers having been brought up in the palace and not knowing about real life mm. took to debauchery uh, women had too much influence eventually eunuchs had too much influence and they then became lax in their defence of the empire foreigners started to kick the Chinese around that would be a, a theme that um, certainly for the period uh, I'm most familiar with in in the first millennium AD, and that's recurring. It's not only in China oh. that recurs, is it? <laughs> not only, but the most important, one of the most important, well, the most important of these early documents is the records of the Grand Historian, written I think around 100 BC. Absolutely. Can you tell us about first of all the circumstances in which that was written? The circumstances are very interesting. They, they are compiled um, by two people and. Uh, they're under the name of the second of them, um, a man called Sima Chen, who says that he was working on this vast project to synthesize all that was known about earlier Chinese history because his father had started it and had died before he could complete it. So it was an act of deep filial piety. When you say vast, can you give us some idea? Are we talking about as long as the Bible or as long yes. as... As long as well, Old and New Testaments uh, together. Okay. Um, put it this way. Um, it's very hard to estimate. It. I mean, there's over half a million Chinese characters in it, but how does that equate into anything we would recognise? Well, you're the one to tell us that. Uh, okay, I'll try. When the missionaries uh, started to translate the Bible into Chinese in the 19th century, they, they did try to translate it into something approximating the very... Um, dense literary style of, of classical Chinese and they found that um, well if if you look at the uh, the whole of the Old Testament it's certainly shorter than than, than this this one work um, of Chinese history and so that was written there and this man was trying to yeah. his name Sima Chen that, I, I'm glad you pronounced it and <laughs> yes. uh, he was the son of the man who had started it yeah um, can we cont- can we stay there for a while, sure. Stokes? Because it give it gives us uh, it gives us something to hold on to, and it's in a sense a foundation book, isn't it? It is foundation because it is the first sort of world history, or at least the first history that claims to be a history of the world until the time of Sematian itself himself. So he starts in the legendary time of the Yellow Emperor, and then writes up to you know his own lifetime, and and that um, is about hundred. That's about hundred yeah. BC. <coughs> 
What's really important about this text is that the format of it will influence the format of standard dynastic histories for centuries to come. What Suma does is he departs from simply including dry, terse records of the kind that Hilda was just talking about in the springs and autumns. And he includes five parts in this major work, which consists of 130 chapters. One is a series of basic annals, so he still has a date-by-date account of what happens during the various reigns. He has chronological tables in which he lists various feudal lords of various regions before unification. And then, interestingly, he includes treatises. And these treatises are on subjects such as the economy, on subjects such as astronomy, on subjects such as the rivers, the territory of the empire. So this is much more than historical judgment. This is an all-inclusive sort of cosmology of the world at large. And another part, which is very important, then, is he talks about hereditary families in a biographical way. And a final set of, of, of standard ingredients in a history since Sumatian would then be the biography. In other words, notable people, because it is notable people who make history. And in Sumatian's case, these are not simply biographies of people at the court or people involved in policy making, but he includes biographies, for example, of jesters, of clowns, of wandering knights, of what he calls harsh officials. These are people renowned for implementing the law. Uh, And so we have, for the first time, a historiography that is formatted in such a way that the same event, the same story, can reoccur either as a very dry record or as an episode, as an anecdote, as part of a biography. So when you read this text, you know, you sometimes lack the same sense of causality that you might have uh, (coughs) uh, when you read maybe the ancient Greeks, where you have a more linear account of history. But it is very cleverly put together in such a way that it is the reader who makes the connections between the events, and it's the author who remains hidden, you know, behind, you know, the factual descriptions. Well, that's like, like, uh, not not at the same time, but we each we have Bede and there's Herodotus and there's Tacitus. People have foundational histories, and this was the foundational book. Of, of Chinese history. Hilda de Wert, the, it became part of a composite work known as the 24 Histories. There's mm. a, how soon after the, um, the, the grand history, history did the 24 History Club, was there any development? What's moving on then? Very soon after Samatian completed his history, the work must have started circulating. We don't really know exactly what happened immediately after he died. Can I pause you for a second? Sorry. When you say circulating, what would that mean? What is the circulation? Who is reading? So in in order for this book to have the impact that it had, it must have been published in some way, either through people making manuscript copies or through oral transmission. In some way, we must be able to ascertain how did other readers get influenced by it. And we, we, the, for the early part, we don't really know very much about that. But we do know that uh, there was a copy in the family and his grandson started, started circulating, that he presented it to court, other court historians got access to it, may have shared it with others. So that very soon, already done by the first century BCE and, and the first century and the Common Era, um, we see com- uh, continuations of this and also emendations. We know that Sumatian died in the first century BCE, his work stopped then, um, a range of, of people started continuing his work. 
they wrote chronicles, biographies, the sorts of uh, parts that he had in his history, uh, but they're following up, they're, they're writing the history of the Han dynasty. The most famous of these was the uh, work done by the Pan family. And it's important, again, that as was the case for Sumatian himself, this was a family history. It was started by his father. The same is true for the Pan family. They saw this as, as a work to be completed by a family of historians. The father, Pan Piao, started it. He did uh, biographies and annals. His son, Pan Ku, more or less completed it. Interestingly, it was actually his daughter who saw it to uh, completion by uh, adding uh, the treatises and, and, and tables. Um, the same story repeats itself. Uh, they wrote up to the, uh, the first part of the Han. There was the, an interregnum roughly between 9 to 23 uh, by Wang Meng. Another set of historians wrote the second part of the Han dynasty. They adopted that same format. It's really that format of having annals, biographies, treaties, as well as tables, that is what we understand by the dynastic history, and that was also the uh, influence of, of Sumatian's model. Uh, perhaps it's, it's worth adding that not necessarily all these four elements are present in all the histories that became part of this. Uh, but what, what is significant is that there were always annals and biographies. Uh, for the reason that uh, Rule indicated, the annals can be quite dry. You can fill them out by looking at the life of the people who shaped history most in these. They're now 24 because the uh, dynasties that followed continued in this vein. Very interestingly, it is still ongoing work. There is still a Qing history being written, commissioned by uh, the reigning... Uh, what do you mean by still? Uh, today? So yes. yes, there is a draft of the Qing history, but currently there's a, a commission making final version of the Qing history. <laughs> Tim Barrett, um, what sort of information can you, as a modern historian, get out of these uh, records of Grand Historian and, and the subsequent histories? What you do get is uh, a very good uh, view of uh, China from the centre, because uh, although uh, Sima Qian did include jesters uh, and so forth, as Rule uh, said, that that really was not um, uh, an innovation that... Um, was sustained, that what you mainly get is what the emperor did, you get uh, what the high court officials did in some detail, dates of their appointments, uh, dates when they were transferred. Uh, you get the view of the wider world from the Chinese centre, who, who were the people on China's borders and so forth, and when, when they attacked China... Uh, and so forth. You get in the treatises a lot of very solid information on on astronomical observances, um, economic information. Although I'm not sure they had a concept of the economy as such, they 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 knew about uh, prices and the distribution of goods. It's 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 all pretty solid stuff. Um, not alleviated by as I say, much to do uh, with women, apart from imperial consorts, nothing much about people far from the centre of power. Uh, for those who have to look elsewhere, um, religious groups did manage to maintain separate histories, for example. Yes, but just staying in there for a moment, yeah. Rule, and well, well, you take this on for, for, for a moment, Tim. Sure. Uh, what are they saying about we the Chinese? What are they saying about <laughs> themselves at this stage? We're talking about the uh, 2,000 years ago ish. Okay. So what are they saying about themselves? Are they saying we are like this, we are like that, our kingdom is like this, we rule, we're what, we're this? Uh, what are they saying? Well, 
they do have the advantage of being the only literate peoples anywhere in their neighbourhood. So they don't feel under any real pressure that we can normally detect to justify themselves to anybody else. Um, I think there's just one passage in an early history, uh, uh, if it's not the, f the first of Sumachen, it's the next one that Hilda mentioned, uh, where it says, if we do this, other countries will laugh at us. But that's, that's just one place where the, the um, sense of cultural superiority slips for a moment. For the most part, they're, they're, they're just not concerned with justifying themselves to anybody else. They are, the, as, as has been pointed out already, the, the political justification is to um, uh, say that we are better than our predecessors. But can I just persist yeah. in that a bit, Ro? Um Can you give us? Is there any way from these records of, that they are that they're saying more about their nature, their, that their characteristics? The, uh, are they always defining themselves against their predecessors and their ancestors? And is that the sort of hermetic uh, land in which we find ourselves, or are they going out and saying we are greater warriors than anybody else? We are a warrior state, or whatever it is. Mm. I think one of the constant threats in these histories is that first of all in order to <coughs> legitimize praise uh, justify your self-existence you obviously have to you know point out that the, the, the people who preceded were, were, were dysfunctional and that people in the past you know were making mistakes and therefore you're you're doing better than your predecessors however in the Chinese context you can never really get rid of the past and so in order to justify your own legitimacy and to put your own history into the context, you know, sort of of the longer durée, you have to hark back even further down in the past because there will be a model that you can emulate in the distant past and that you can then actually sort of adopt as uh, you know, your own kind of mirror, so to speak. Before you come in, is there, is there a, double, a double sense here that they're looking at the past to say they were incompetent, we're not, but they're also looking at the past to... To, and seeing inspirational figures in the past. Absolutely. I mean, the the whole point of these histor histories is really that history is driven by personalities, by personalities and events. That will surprise people because they think... That, anyway, <laughs> never mind. Here we go. Good. Yeah. Because I think it, there's some statistic I got from one of your things that in Anglo-Saxon Chronicles and Development, about 3,000 people are named, uh, or rather, rather more, eight, and 33,000. Well, 8,000 in Anglo-Saxon and 33,000 mm -hmm. in, in the books that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. That's taken us a silly diversion. Hilda, <laughs> Hilda, can we talk about um, the... You wanted to come in, first of all. I did want to come in, uh, in with respect to your question about is there something in these early records and, and histories about who, who we are? And I think part of the reason why it's perhaps less evident in the dynastic histories that is that in some ways that work had been done in the classics that we talked about at the very beginning, the mm -hmm. Book of Documents in particular, where, for example, when we're talking about the the geographical characteristics of what are the Chinese territories. There is the tribute of Yu, where one of the uh, mythic hero, mythological heroes goes through the various parts that supposedly were then part of the unified empire. This text was probably written in the second century, you know, when, when the Chinese empire had been unified, but it projects that idea of a unified empire all the way back to the very beginning of Chinese history. Um, the same for good government, the idea that the ruler is there, 
to make sure that the people are well fed and well cared for. So these sorts of ideas of who we are and, and defined both in terms of what the Chinese territories are in, in a real geographic sense, but also what our good government is like as opposed to that of others is in some ways already there. And it's something that gets built up on uh, in later histories. There's a book called Historical Perspectives. Can you tell us what that brings to the table? Yes, I think you're, you're referring to Shi Tong Liu Jiji's yeah, uh, yeah. history. Uh, the the title is actually quite important. It's uh, it's variously translated as either uh, generalities of history, or I would say perhaps better understood as history understood in depth. It is the first critical assessment of what history does, how it should be written, how it had been written in Chinese history. It was worked on by Liu Zhiqi, who Which had a lot about, of experience. Yeah. It was done in 710, completed uh, in 710, so 8th Seven. century. And by that point, a lot of histories had been written. There had been a lot of critical assessments of previous histories. Pan Piao was probably the first one who was very critical of what Sima Tian had done, even though he, in he inherited his work. But what Liu Zhiqi sets out to do is to, in a in variety of ways, think in an abstract manner about how history works. So he tells us about the various genres in which you can write history, the subgenres. For example, he analyzes in a systematic way dynastic histories and their various parts. He tells us also about historical methods and techniques, how you select material, on what criteria should you reject material if it's not internally consistent, if it's not consistent with more reliable sources, if it says things that don't make common sense, you reject it. It tells us about the writing of history. What is good writing? And he comes down actually again, sort of against Samatian on that one, who writes very verbose, we like that. Leo Jardine doesn't like that. He comes down on the sides of concision. Uh, very importantly, I think also, he tells us about the qualities of the historian. What makes a good historian? A good historian is somebody who tells the truth. And that oftentimes means he speaks truth to power. And he did that himself as well. So coming to that rule, Stokes, they, how objective... You, we, you've mentioned, it has been mentioned once or twice around the table early on that they were, in the, they were serving the emperor, they were serving the court, they were... They were there to do that, and from the earliest divinations, they told the emperor what they guessed or the emperor best wanted to know. Um, when did this, this suggestion of objectivity coming in here? Um, how objective were they? Because we know that the greatest historian of all, when he objected to what he objected to some military manoeuvres uh, and, and didn't go along with the empire, was, wasn't was poisoned and wasn't executed because he was something worse. He was castrated, which meant he could have no progeny, which was the greatest thing. Nevertheless, he went on writing his history. So there were dangers in being a historian there. So can you can you tell us about about the historians, what we know about them and how objective they could be? It's a difficult question because objectivity, of course... <clears throat> assumes that, you know, we would have an archival record against which we could test, you know, the, histo the, the historiographical narrative. Um, I think the best way to put this is that, you know, for some factual information, uh, these particular histories, I mean, including, you know, the historical records are very useful. Um, but one has to qualify, you know, a number of uh, data in them and we'll be very critical, for example, statistics, the use of numbers is very problematic in histories because they tend to be inflated. 
uh, as they are addressing, obviously, you know, the, the court. Um, they are subjective at the same time, but subjective opinion of the historian is not really there as a sustained kind of argument in the kind of I voice. Sumatian will have a little reflection at the end of every chapter, saying this is why I felt it important to talk about these people as part of this work. But what happens much more often, and actually even one of the great commentaries on the springs and autumns, the commentary by Mr. Tso operates mm. in that way, is that you have anecdotes put in, you know, sort of the mouths of famous protagonists that would impart indirect sort of opinion or criticism, but that actually sort of, not in the voice of the historian, but in the voice of a, thir of a third person. So, in a sense, you know, the historian doesn't really see his work as a mirror of his own opinions but rather sees, you know, his opinions uh, flowing in between, um, you know, sort of his mirroring, his putting together of uh, data, really. And I think that in the case of the first great history of the historical record, Suma Chen was very conscious that this was not the last opinion on events and that future generations might actually use his work and disagree with him, which sounds effectively helps. Sounds very much like medieval uh, chronicles manuscripts in, in this country, doesn't it, really? Very, very similar constraints, very similar objectives, very similar non-objectivities. Yeah. Uh, Tim Barrett, the, the, the status of writing is a, a history as a profession changed at the end of the first millennium. AD, just before printing came in and they were using paper already. Uh, what sort of work was produced then? Well, by this stage, what you're getting um, at the centre is built up since uh, the time of the um, um, book that uh, Hilda's just been talking about, is um, the compilation of official history through successive stages by um, employees of the state in the imperial bureaucracy. Um, in theory, it's built up from diaries that are kept of everything that is said by the emperor and everything, uh, everything that is said to the emperor. Um, and those records then, um, at the end of each reign... Um, consolidated into one record and under the obituary notices of uh, the, the prominent ministers there would be biographical material inser inserted then a draft of um, a, a total history of the dynasty so far would accumulate all these documents Is it is it a high purpose in this or a, a main purpose to teach good government to, uh, to say this is what you do to rule properly this is what you do to administer properly is it a teaching instrument it has uh, several functions that is certainly one of them that, that uh, um, in a sense you can look at uh, the accumulation of Chinese history as a, a wonderful record of um, policy decisions over hundreds of years that a later um, ruler or minister can consult on, say, a border question. How do we deal with these um, um, nomads, um, given their very different lifestyle and the way they're always raiding? Then you've got... Um, You've, you've got wonderful um, record of, of how previous governments have dealt with this, and but at the same time... Um, a more immediate purpose might be to gloss over political mistakes. The historians are under political influence. Mm. Um, 
And um, so, yes, uh, as we've pointed out several times before, you're also justifying your own actions as well as providing material for future rulers. I've just looked at the clock and we announced at the top of this programme these recent massive excavations have produced massive new evidence and it's time we got round to them, rural Sturks. Can you just briefly tell us the quantity that's been discovered and then let's talk about the influence that the quality might have on what you have been talking about? Sure. Well, obviously, modernization in China means road building, means turning the soil upside down. And in the last few decades, you know, we've seen a staggering amount of new documents. Unlike anywhere else in the world. Unlike anywhere else in terms of quantity, I think. I mean, we have, I mean, if you just want to have a, <clears throat> a sense of the one of the latest, more significant finds, that's one that was sort of dug up between 2002 and 2005 in Hunan province, where we found 37,000 bamboo slip records that date to the period of the first emperor, you know, the, the time of the famous emperor with the terracotta army. Um, in terms of volume, uh, this, this, this is thousands and thousands and thousands of, 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 of bamboo slips. Um, and in terms of coverage of subjects, it actually offers, you know, uh, an entirely new picture that we have of specific, of, of, of certainly, you know, of the history of early China in that we find medical texts, we find administrative texts, we find legal texts of which there isn't a trace in the received histories. We find even a cooking book, we find economic records, financial transactions. And so what happens is that gradually, as these new texts are being unveiled, actually the last one just before Christmas, including a manual for horse veterinarians in the Han period. <laughs> so as all these new materials pop up, actually, we are increasingly uh, able to deconstruct you know, the central narrative in the received histories and test some of those narratives against the data we find in texts in tombs. How do you see it uh, coming into play? Well, th there's one uh, addition that I would uh, make. Uh, this applies in particular to early China, where it's very important given that the, the transmitted record is, is relatively small when compared to later history, uh, particularly when the time uh, printing takes off. But the same would apply to uh, 9th, 10th and 11th century history. So as one digs up sites, one also discovers tombs from later periods that also include texts, drama, uh, contracts in particular, uh, which help us understand more about the role of women in the household, uh, their property holding and so forth. So definitely it adds to the picture. It also allows us to perhaps get a, a different understanding of what the transmitted record has done. But I would add one uh, other uh, observation here, and that's if the, the history of uh, Chinese historiography te teaches us one thing, it is that history is renewed not only by new sources, but also by new methodologies. One of the most significant innovations in, in Chinese historiography was indeed collation and philological approaches that allowed them to deconstruct the early history of Chinese texts way before new discoveries were made. And we're finding ourselves actually in a similar period right now, where, for example, by using digital methods, we could start looking at these texts and also the new texts in ways that allow us to place very small parts in a much larger whole and another consequence of obviously these new finds is that you know we have a different geographical perspective. So increasingly, this 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 applies to historiography as we speak in China today. An increasing interest in local history, in actually linking 
uh, local history to the context of that greater unity called, you know, the Chinese Empire or, you know, <clears throat> the People's Republic of China, if you like, in which pa basically people are going to re-mine the received uh, histories for data that they can place to certain localities. So this is quite interesting as a, as a, as a new development. Tim, Tim Barrett, what role has history writing traditionally played in Chinese culture and the whole of Chinese culture? It's interesting that... Uh, uh, along with the, the uh, early texts that were deemed to be, as it were, classics, history was an important part of uh, education from a very early age. And um, it, it must be said that uh, this meant all of Chinese history, an outline knowledge uh, of um, uh, dynasty after dynasty, was... was, was uh, being used even at very early stages of education. Obviously, uh, it was not no great detail, but great... Um, I mean, are they immersed in their history? Are they very proud of their history? Do they bring it to bear? We use it okay. today and so on. Is it a central part of Chinese culture? Yes, it is. And certainly, uh, in, in uh, a, a traditional education, you would simply memorise the history. So the... Um, no matter whether it's a half a million characters or not, and 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 I've I've known friends who were taught by elderly Chinese, uh, educated in the early twentieth century, who could identify quotations from dynastic histories simply because they had been told to memorise them in their youth. Um, even today. I, I think, um, thank heavens for digitization, so we don't have to uh, adopt that approach. But uh, you do find that a sense of the heritage of China's past uh, in surveys turns out to be uh, the one thing that gives the Chinese nation a confidence about the future. Um, you know, uh, we have a glorious history. Um, no matter what the Chinese dream may be for the future, we certainly are building on a great past. And perhaps no, one of one of one of the uh, discussions that illustrates that best is discussions amongst contemporary historians about the origins of Chinese civilization and the origins of Chinese writing, in which one tries to push back the origins of this kind, the Chinese script closer to the Babylonians, sometimes on very, very, very questionable evidence. But quite clearly, sort of the origin narratives are very much... They want to be there first, you want briefly? Yes. Uh, one, one of the things that I, I think is ongoing is what I would call so the, the archival approach in historical writing. And that's still evident in popular Chinese historiography as well as academic. The idea that if you want to make an argument, it has to be based on the archives, but on a critical approach to the archives. And that's there since the beginning of Sumatian, repeated by Sumak Wang, the second major historian, and it goes all the way into the present. Well, thank you very much, Hilda Devert, uh, Rule Stokes and Tim Barrett. Next week we'll be talking about catastrophism, the idea that the Earth has gone through several intervals of rapid change of deeply destructive nature. Thank you for listening. There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio 4.